You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. And just a quick show of hands, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, how many of us have kind of read ahead and like know what the text is going to be about? Any? Very few. Okay, that's fine. Um, that just makes my job a little bit harder, but that's okay. Um, where we find ourselves in Ephesians, just to kind of introduce the topics, we're, we're, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, and let me go ahead and read it, and I'll give a quick introduction and summary. Paul's writing, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. So, just to kind of connect where we were and kind of where we're going, um, since we find ourselves in Ephesians, Ephesians, very simply, is divided into the first three chapters as doctrine. The last three is more based towards exhortation or application. It's very important to remember this pattern as we study the Bible because, because you must understand doctrine before you, begin, you can begin to practice. In other words, as our guest has said last week, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Application, and just for an example, application is kind of like a car. So you think about it as a car. Um, whereas... Doctrine is like the map. As you can guess, you need both. What happens if you're all car and no map? Well, you're going somewhere, but you don't know where or how you'll get there or even why you're going. On the other hand, if you have a map but no car, you will know the details of the map, you'll have studied it, but you'll never arrive at your destination. So we need both. And one of the dangers of having one without the other is that the sermons that you hear are easily forgotten. So imagine if I came up here and I started 
preaching to you guys, do this, do this, do this. And by the time I hit my fifth or sixth do this point, you kind of checked out and it goes in one ear and out the other. You don't understand why you have to do it and it's just kind of like throwing seed on a dry ground. It didn't really have roots in anything. Um, that's where doctrine comes in. If I explain to you why you have to do it, where we've been, where we're going, it makes more sense. And you kind of have this picture of a map of where you're going. And so I heard one preacher say it's kind of like in the pulpit, what you need is a fire. And uh, in the sense that a fire gives off both heat and light, where heat is like the application, it, it opens your heart and it causes you to actually do something, to practice. And light is, is, comes from the Word of God. When a preacher is able to explain or exposit a text, you're able to have light on the text and you use that light with the correct practice and you're able to go somewhere and reach your destination. And that's exactly what we see here from Paul. Paul's no different. Once again, the first three, largely on doctrine, and then following is the application. And where we're going to be heading today, I kind of read about it. it you know, it's already pretty standard. Um, it's gifts. So we're going to be talking about gifts today and how that applies to uh, unity in the body and church growth, which kind of reminds me of a funny story. And just bear with me. But there was this uh, kindergarten class, and it was Valentine's Day. And uh, a little girl came up. All the kids were giving gifts to the teacher. Really sweet on Valentine's Day. How nice. First girl comes up, and uh, her dad's a florist. And she hands the teacher a box. The teacher kind of shakes it a little bit. And she goes, is this flowers? And the little girl says, yes. And she's all excited. She goes, sits down. The next boy who comes up, uh, he's a local candy store owner's son. And he comes up with a box, gives it to the teacher. Teacher shakes it. Is this candy? Little boy says, yes. And he's all excited. Feels good about himself. He goes, sits down. Last boy comes up. And uh, he's a boy of a local liquor store owner. And uh, he comes up with his gift. And uh, you can tell it's leaking out of the side a little bit. And the teacher, uh, she puts a little bit on her finger and she licks it. And she says, uh, is this wine? And the little boy goes, no. And he's like, okay. She takes a, another taste. Is this champagne? No. And she's like, what is it? And the boy says, a puppy. <laughs> Which is to say that gifts are a good thing, but only if we can understand them in their proper context. So now, to understand the section we are coming to, we must understand that Paul is writing to a church made up of Jew and Gentile. It's easier to divide over cultural differences than to be united, especially in that time, with the uh, cultural separation of the Jews and certain laws and habits that they had growing up with eating and uh, ceremonial washing and dressing, which was very strange to the Gentiles. And uh, there was a need for unity in that church. We read last week, very powerful, that there's one body, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father, one hope. And uh, this outlines the doctrine of unity. This is what we are united in, um, our belief. 
And in fact, religion, the word religion simply means to be united in one belief. Now, Paul takes a, a further step by giving the church an, another uniting feature. And this is more of something that must be walked out, and that is gifts. Um, another interesting point of view about these gifts is that uh, the book of Ephesians actually corresponds to the Old Testament book of Joshua. I don't know if any of you know this. Uh, very interesting because we read in uh, Ephesians 1, 1, 4, uh, 1, 3, it says that we are blessed with all blessings in heavenly places. Yep. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So the idea here about these blessings, like if you think about it, so what blessings are we blessed with? I would think about love. And when you're blessed with love, it's like there's no bitterness that can come to your heart. It leads to joy. The, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And how many of us can say we have joy in turbulent times when we don't know what, what's going to happen next? And then what about peace? A peace that surpasses all understanding. In any circumstances we find ourselves in, whether it could be uh, a loss of a loved one or loss of a job or, or whatever evils might come upon us, we have this peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's a very real thing. It's not some idea out there in space. But the idea is that we have to lay hold of these spiritual blessings, just like in the book of Joshua. If you remember when the children of Israel were coming up to the promised land, um, God basically told them that they had, he had given them the land, but now they have to actually go and lay hold of it and obtain it through warfare. And so in like manner, we are also without the scripture without gathering with our brothers and sisters, and without actual practice, we cannot lay hold of these things. And it's just like, I'll, I'll give a quick illustration of a car in a garage. Say I'm a rich millionaire, billionaire, and I give you a brand new Ferrari, okay? It's in the garage, I say, hey, I put the keys up on the top shelf, the car is yours. Now, imagine, okay, the car is mine, I have it, but I never actually go out, grab the keys, put it in the ignition, and drive it. And say, a year goes by, five years, 25 years, and I come to the end of my life. And I was blessed with this car, but I never took it out. And it's been sitting in that garage. And it's sad to say, but perhaps many times we might find ourselves in that situation as well, where God has blessed us with these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It's a very real thing. But Christians don't lay hold of what they have in Christ. And they leave it sitting there. And they come to the end of their life and they wonder, why was I so filled with anxiety and fear and despair and hatred? Because you didn't lay hold of what God has already given you. And that is also to say about these gifts as well that we're going to go into. And um, as I'm kind of speaking here, I want you to think about what is my gift. That, that should be a question throughout this sermon as an um, application for your life. So before I get started in verse 7, I'd like to start with a quick prayer. So if we can just bow our heads. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you today and we're so thankful that you are present, that you are here. I pray that you would use this word for your glory, um, 
these are just my notes, but if you want to take over, uh, take over, Lord Father. Make this sermon real to us, real to our hearts, real to me, Lord Father, um, that we would have a richer life and that we would lay hold of all the promises and gifts you have given us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, let's look at the first verse. But to each one of us, grace was giving, given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, an easy way to label these uh, verses from 7 to 16 is the purpose of gifts unite the body okay, and glorify Christ. When I give a gift, I am bestowing upon you something you didn't earn and have no right to demand. The word measure, so it says the measure of Christ's gift, implies that some are given a greater degree of gifts than others. And one example, real quick, you think about it, an apostle is on a higher level and was more important to the church than, say, the gift of service. But the idea is that they're both important and everyone got what the Lord desired for them to have. We're not necessarily judged on how great our ministry was, but how faithful we were in that ministry. Um, so don't despair if you feel like the only gift you have is like the gift of prayer or the gift, and the only the gift of prayer. Prayer is very important. So um, don't, don't despair that you're not in front of people or you, you're not Billy Graham leading millions, okay? Um, it's, it's your faithful service. Now, who gives the gift? It's Christ. If you look at verse 11, and I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, and he himself gave. So this is speaking of Christ. Christ is the giver of these gifts through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to even see that in the next section. It is singular, and I'm, I'm going to get back to that, a singular gift. And the grace filled Jesus because Jesus is full of grace. He can extend not only salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection, he doesn't just leave us there. Although we could say, that's enough. You've saved us from damnation. That, that should be enough, right? But the idea is, he is full of grace, and on top of that, he gives us gifts. Real quick, John chapter 114. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as if the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Once again, grace. He's full of it, and, and, I'm, and I'm happy today because I need it. And I don't know about you, but there's plenty for me and there's plenty for you. This idea goes even deeper. Um, the thought goes deeper, and he connects the gifts with marriage. If you've kind of ha haven't made that connection yet. In a betrothal, um, a Jewish man would give gifts to his future bride, sealing the covenants. The betrothal was bound by law and would require a divorce to break it, even though the ceremony or the wedding night had not taken place. And we can talk about Genesis, one quick citation, I'm not going to read it, but Genesis 24, 22, um, the context is, if you remember, where Abraham sends his servant Eliezer to go and get a bride for his son Isaac. Does this story sound familiar to you guys? Okay, and when he arrives, he says, uh, the woman that not only gives me water, but waters my camel, she will be the one. 
and Rebecca comes out, waters the camels, and the next thing he does in the story is he takes rings and he gives it to her. So this is a gift that he gives to that woman that will become a bride. And societal rules have not changed much since then because even today men still propose with a ring, with a gift. Paul is referring to this practice because Christ is our groom and we are his bride. So it goes very deep. Uh, Gifts are singular, and I'm going to touch more on that, uh, but can be used in multiple ways. For example, um, say you have the gift of service and you use that in counseling. Or you have the gift of um, teaching and you use it in evangelism. So they can be used in multiple ways, but a singular gift. So moving forward, this next section, Paul actually, it's like kind of a sidebar. It seems a little bit out of place, but he's following the thought with what did Christ do to obtain these gifts? Okay, so let me read the text. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So we'll stop there for a second. This is actually a quotation from Psalm 68, 18. Um, it's a direct quotation. In, uh, in some translations, it says, and he, gave, and he received gifts from men. But even the Jewish Septuagint uh, corrects this translation, and it should read, he gave gifts to men. This psalm tells us that Christ not only descended to earth, often called the great condescension, but he descended into Sheol, or the grave. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but if some of us, uh, you know, they actually asked like a questionnaire like, do you know what hell is? And most people would say yes, or heaven. But then when we use the word Sheol of the Old Testament, that's a little bit foreign to us. Maybe it's a little bit lost. So maybe taking a, a minute or two to explain it will be a little bit helpful. If you look at Luke 16... Luke 16, 22 to 26. I'll just read it, give a quick explanation, move on. So this is Jesus speaking. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. I'll stop there. So the idea here is that in the Old Testament, and I won't read the reference, but Genesis 37, 33 to 35, uh, speaks of Jacob when he finds out that his son Joseph had died, right? Remember the brothers dipped that coat in in blood. They presented it to him and they're like, wow, a wild beast has torn my son. Uh, It's recorded that Jacob said, my soul will descend into Sheol mourning, into the grave. And so all the Old Testament saints knew that they, when they died, they were descending down. And this is very important because we know today to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So 
How is it that in the Old Testament they descended and now we're going in the presence of the Lord? Well, what actually happened is when they died, they went to a place called Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. Um, literally, it was always, uh, the references are always pointing downwards. Um, it's not just a euphemism, but uh, Sheol is literally in the center of the earth. We, we know that as you go deeper into the earth, it gets hotter. So that, that's no error. I mean, it's, it's true. Uh, while Christ descended, the place was separated, as we read in Luke where there was a great gulf fix, where on one side was Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. On the other side was uh, Hades, what we'd call Hades in the Greek, um, the place of the dead, where they were tormented. And so the idea is Christ descended. It says that he led captivity captive. What does that mean? So led captivity captive refers to the ascent of Christ after his death on the cross into the lower parts of the earth to take the captives, the Old Testament saints, from Abraham's bosom. Now the idea is, why did he have to take the Old Testament saints from this place anyway? Well, if you remember, God is so holy that being in his presence would mean instant judgment. That's how it is. God cannot be in the presence of sin. So what God did was, he placed these people, the faithful, into a place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, until a time that the death of Christ was made on our behalf. So if you, if you think about it, it's like God saved these Old Testament saints on credit because the payment was not made. When the, cross, the events of the cross occurred, he saved them on debit. The payment was made and now we can look forward and that's why he brought them out of Sheol and into the presence of God. So, the occasion of his victory over death led him to receive gifts for men. In fact, we know Christ not only visited Abraham's bosom, he also proclaimed his victory to the rebellious spirits in 1 Peter 3. And I'll just quickly read it. So he goes to the positive and negative side of it. Uh, I'll just read 3.19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, and I'll just stop there. So the idea is that he not only went to set captivity free, but he also proclaimed his victory over the rebellious spirits, and this is referring to Genesis 6. I don't have much time to go into it, um, so I'll just kind of say it in passing, that uh, he proclaimed victory over these spirits that were trying to stop the plan of salvation that we find in Genesis 3, 3.15 specifically, um, that they had failed. And so he ascended. When did he give these gifts? His ascension. Acts, you can read about it in Acts 1, 9 through 11. He ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. The central thought in the verses 8 through 10 is that the giver of these gifts is the ascended Christ. There was no such gifts before he went back to heaven. And this also further supports the idea that the church did not exist in the Old Testament, for if it did, it was a church without gifts. Um, and then this kind of strange idea, to fill all things. Okay, you can add fulfill all things and fulfill scripture and God time and time again literally does this, okay? So to fulfill all things. Now verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. And I'll just stop there for a second. 
He himself, and this is what I kind of spoke on earlier, is referring to Christ. Christ is the giver of the gifts by the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who sovereignly does what he pleases, and he doesn't ask our permission either. If you think about the apostles, he didn't ask any of their permission. He didn't ask them to be apostles. He commanded them. Uh, The first one, he gave some to be apostles. We'll stop there for a second. So, apostle literally means sent with a message. And there was three main distinctions. And if we can understand these distinctions, it will kind of help us from going into some errors. The first one, to be an apostle, they were personally commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in a physical form. So physically commanded. Uh, Then think about the uh, case of Matthias in Acts 1.26. If you remember... Uh, after Judas Iscariot killed himself, they drew lots for who's going to be the next apostle because there was a vacant spot. And a lot fell on Matthias uh, between two men. Matthias wins, but what happens to the ministry of this man? We never hear about him again in Scripture. Um, kind of like he's void, which is, kind of does further support this idea that Christ was the one who literally commanded these men to be apostles, and Lot's was not good enough because he disappeared off the pages of Scripture. And we read about the prominent Paul that comes into, into place. Uh, number two. So remember, they were personally commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical form. Number two, they could write Scripture. So this was another distinguishing mark of an apostle. Uh, They actually were the ones who penned uh, inspired writings. So to say that you're an apostle would also give you much authority in teaching, and you were writing scripture at that point. Number three, they performed miracles or sign gifts, including resurrection. So we read about that. Peter and Paul literally raised people from the dead. And... Why the sign gifts? Why do you think? I mean, I know that there's uh, movements out there that place a lot of emphasis on, on these miracles and sign gifts, and it, it actually has the effect of drawing people away from the message of the gospel. It actually does the opposite of maybe what they intended. The idea of the, of the miracles and the sign gifts is that the idea is that God is the one who puts a stamp of approval through these miracles because we know self-evidently that men do not perform miracles on their own. I cannot raise the dead on my own. So if I can raise the dead, God is putting his stamp of approval on you. And when I give a doctrine or give a teaching or explain the Old Testament, as they were doing, an apostle would be basically explaining the Old Testament to the congregation. And so you could trust my message. You don't have to just trust the words I'm saying, but the gifts verify my message. Are you guys following? Okay. So that was the point. Largely, the office of apostleship, or most scholars agree that it has uh, died with the death of John on the island of Patmos. Um, He was the last living apostle. After his death, that uh, office was closed, and um, scripture was given. The last book in the book of Revelation, it says that if anyone adds these words, so shall plagues be added to his life. If anyone takes away the words of this prophecy, so shall uh, his uh, name be taken away from the Lamb's book of life. So it's very 
uh, a very strict warning. Now, why is it dangerous for people today claiming to be apostles? And I know I'm going a little bit long on the apostles section, but it does happen, and that's why I felt like it needed to be addressed. There are people that sign their name on business cards, apostle so-and-so. And as soon as you see that, it's a great indicator that you can just run the other way. Uh, because the implication is that uh, they are usurping authority that they do not have, especially if oftentimes they teach something contrary to Scripture. Uh, and many people fall hook, line, and sinker into these teachings, and it's, it's very sad, especially when they contradict Scripture. So, going back to the text, and he gave, he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, and we'll stop there. Prophets were literally the spokesmen or mouthpieces of God. They received direct revelation from God and passed them onto the church. What they spoke by the Holy Spirit was the word of God. Most scholars would agree that the office of prophet has also ceased with the establishment of the church in Scripture. And I believe that there is room for prophetic utterance uh, in rare circumstances as we draw closer to the end of the age. As we read in Acts 2, 17 and 18, this is Peter speaking, he talks, he says that in the last days, your young men will dream dreams, your old men will see visions, or vice versa. Um, and so there is still room for that gift to be uh, used, even today, as we draw closer and closer. This, however, must be tested and discerned and cannot contradict Scripture. Uh, the dangers of false prophets um, are huge because they can lead people astray once again because people believe it is equal to the Word of God. And uh, people can do crazy things because of a word of some so-called prophet. On top of that, there are strict consequences for prophets um, if they uh, give a false prophecy. If you guys are familiar, in the Old Testament, if you gave one false prophecy, you were stoned. Uh, no questions asked. You were, you were stoned. So even one misprophecy would mean that you're not a prophet of God. Um, prophets like Isaiah they would often give these far-term prophecies, right? And you'd say, well, we can't stone them because we don't know if it's going to come true. God always, always authenticates his prophets. The way he does that he is not only does Isaiah give a far-term prophecy, but he gives a near-term. So, for example, he says to Hezekiah, um, give a sign to God and, and God will spare your life. And the sign was like the sundial goes backwards. And Hezekiah uh, life was spared. So Isaiah literally gave a, a bunch of near-term prophecies and they came true. So the idea is if the near-term prophecies come true, you can bet on the far-term as well. And these prophets were batting 100%. They were 10 out of 10. I mean, there was no error in their words. Evangelists. He gave some to be evangelists. Evangelists are those who preach the good news of salvation they are divinely equipped to win the lost to Christ. They have a special combination of tact and boldness with understanding of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. They ask the right questions and encourage their converts to find a local body. Uh, this, however, is not an excuse for other Christians to not evangelize. Like if you've heard the excuse, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I can't do it. Um, we must all, like we're all called by the Great Commission to uh, go out and preach the word, the gospel, 
and to give an account of our salvation. Especially if you do not have the gift of evangelism, the best place that you can do to be faithful is your close circles. You have friends that I don't know of that I might never reach or meet. Family members, co-workers that I believe God has placed you there, you in their life for that purpose. And so we ought to be faithful in ministering or at least giving that call to our friends and close family member circles. Okay? Pastors. He gave some to be pastors. These men who serve as under-shepherds of the sheep of Christ, they guide and feed the flock. Theirs is a ministry of counsel, correction, encouragement, and consolation. So if you're having a tough time with a decision, that's the counsel. Correction. Say... Uh, you're living in willful disobedience, in sin. They are there to rebuke you and correct you with the word. Encouragement. If you're feeling down, um, oppressed, depressed, they're there to also encourage you, lift you up. Uh, consolation. Say that you have lost a loved one. Um, they're there also to pray with you and to shed tears with you as well. So this uh, takes a very big heart and it, it takes a very special person and I'm happy to uh, have Pastor Ovi as our shepherd, uh, who has many times um, been faithful to all these uh, statements. Teachers, men who are divinely empowered to explain what the Bible says, interpret what it means, and apply it to the hearts and consciences. Some have even gone to say that the idea here where it says pastors and teachers is it should be pastor-teacher. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that because there are some people that are great pastors that do not have the gift of teaching, or there are some that are great teachers, but they don't have much of a heart for the flock, okay? So that does exist as well. And we should also be very careful to distinguish between divine gifts and natural talents. This is important. No unsaved person, no matter how talented, could be an evangelist, pastor, or teacher in the New Testament sense. In essence, the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural and enable a man to do what would be humanly impossible for him. So even if we got the best secular preacher to come out here, he might give a way better speech than I could. I could just sit down. Um, but he would not be gifted uh, divinely to share the word of the Lord. And we, we see that today. It's, it's really sad when you have a pastor in the pulpit that is an atheist, and many have come out saying that they are atheists. So um, happy to say that that's not present here at Summit Church. Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ... So this is, he gave them, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers, for the equipping. We're going to the purpose. The gifts equip the saints. The saints then serve and the body is then built up. The saints are equipped through teaching and understanding the word for work of their ministry. Ministry means service or to serve. All believers are expected to serve the church in some way. It could be teaching at the Sunday school, praying for one another on a daily basis, funding evangelists and missionaries, or even humbly cleaning the toilets at church. 
All areas of service are important in the body of Christ. And once again, Christ judges the believers not on the size of their ministry, like not everyone is a Billy Graham, but on their faithfulness to their ministry. The growth of the individual Christian then edifies the entire body. What we mean by the word edification or edify, and uh, this is something I actually had to look up. We use the word edify quite often, and I, I like, could not put a definition to it. Um, it literally means to build up the body, to build. Uh, think about like a construction pro- project to erect a building. To summarize, the verse can be read as uh, verse 12. The teaching of the saints for the work of their service for the building of the body of Christ. Easy way to think of it. The body of Christ can be edified or built in two ways. One is individual maturity, uh, which we will explore in the next verse, and the other is numerically, which is, I'll kind of touch on that on on the last verse. So we have a quality and quantity. So the quality of the believers that come to the church builds the church. It makes the church stronger. And then numerically, as we grow, and we want both. I know week, week after week, we hear to pray for Summit Church, to pray for Garden City. One of the best things, even if you might look around and you say, man, we have such a, maybe a smaller, on the smaller side of a congregation, I kind of see it as a plus because we're more of a family. But at the same time, I have seen great leaps and bounds. I've been with you guys for over a year now, and the more I talk to people, the more I can see man, they're getting it. The word is kind of penetrating more and more. Our conversations are getting deeper, more rooted in Christ, uh, more frequently about Christ. We're able to, I mean, oftentimes I see the majority of people here stick around after the service and we get to talk either about our week or about maybe something we learned or have a discussion or debate and it's wonderful because honestly, um, there's no other place you can do that. So, the idea of the body of Christ. So, it says, edifying of the body of Christ. This is extremely profound, and we can pass it over without giving it much thought. Throughout the Old Testament, God worked with the nation of Israel. The idea of the body of Christ was a mystery or secret. So, uh, a mystery in the Bible is not like uh, a detective, like you get a magnifying glass and you're like looking for clues to find something, it was actually a secret. It means it was not yet revealed. And Paul was the one that was uh, responsible for revealing the mystery of the church, the body of Christ, this new man, he calls it. So, it is in essence the collective born-again believers from all around the world, the body of Christ, that make up uh, the believers from around the world in time and place They make up Jesus' hands and feet and work in his place to share the good news of salvation and growth and maturity as we will see in the later verses. And isn't it wonderful, not only do we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in his place, teaching in his place as it were, but when we're persecuted, we get to take the beatings that were meant for Jesus and we have the honor of taking that as well. And uh, Christ identifies so uh, intimately with us that when he talks to Paul, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting them? So it's such a great honor to be part of the body of Christ. Verse 13. 
we reach 13 and 14 are kind of what you can think of as positive and negative statements. So we're going to look at the positive. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure or the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, first. So how long will this growth process continue? Answer, until we come to a state of unity, maturity, and conformity. Okay. So unity, the first point. We look at, until we come to the unity of the faith. So we'll stop there. When the Lord takes the church home, we will arrive to the full unity of the faith. Now we see in a mirror dimly with regard to many matters. We have differences of opinion on a host of subjects. One day we will fully agree by reaching the knowledge of the Son of God. Here we have individual views of the Lord. And what he's like, the implications of his teaching, then we will see him as he is and know him as we are known. And the idea that we can reach unity through doctrine as well, and we are all tuned to the same Bible, just this. No Book of Mormon, no Jehovah's Witness teaching, just the simple word of God. This is our authority, and that's one of our core values, if you look in the back, Scripture as our authority. The unity, more and more united as we know this book. Maturity, so it says, to a perfect man. So, are we maturing a full stage or advanced development? And the way you can mature is by implication through trial and error, character development and training. So this occurs when we rub shoulders with our, not only our brothers and sisters, but the outside world. But with our brothers and sisters, we have a safe space where we believe the same thing and oftentimes there are conflicts between believers. And how you handle that conflict uh, says a lot about your maturity, where you're at. Can you love someone despite differences? And the, the idea is if you have trouble loving your brothers and sisters at a local church, I, there's little or no hope for you to love your enemies. I'm sorry, but you, you can't do that if you can't love the ones that love Christ. Conformity. It says, to the measure or stature of the fullness of Christ. We will be morally like Christ and the universal church will be fully grown up, perfectly suited for his glorious head and the fullness of Christ is the church itself. However, at this point, we are to conform more and more to the image of Christ. And we can only know Christ through his word. And I'm glad you're here today for that end. Let's go to the negative side, verse 14. That we should no longer be children so we'll stop there. Immaturity. When the gifts are operating in their God-appointed manner, the saints are, are active in service for the Lord. Three dangers are avoided. Immaturity, instability, and gullibility. So those are the, the, the three that are warned here. That we should no longer be children. That's immaturity. Believers that never become involved in service never get past the baby Christian stage. They are underdeveloped through lack of exercise Hebrews 5.12, really quickly, on maturing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, 
and you have come to need milk and not solid food. And that's a sad verse. Are you exercising as a believer, rubbing shoulders with your brothers and sisters, or do you just quickly leave after church? We never see you at a, an event or a gathering outside of the church service. And I know uh, Pastor Ovi was preaching on, are you a, do you see church as a family or do you see church as a business? Are you just a Christian consumer or are you really in the family and part of the body of Christ? Are you involved? Instability. Going back to the text, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's unstable. Spiritual fickleness. Are you tossed by new Christian fads or spiritual uh, professional quacks? Can you discern correct teaching and doctrine? Moving to and fro and never being settled in basic matters. And what I mean by basic matters, once again, Hebrews Hebrews 6, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary, elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to the perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on hands, of resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So these are some of the basic doctrines of the faith. He's saying, let us move forward, let us progress. And the more we can progress, our conversations and our understanding becomes richer and our faith becomes larger because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The more you know the word, the more your faith can grow. With little word, little faith. That's how it works. And that's the idea. Don't be tossed to and fro. The next big you know, secular preacher comes out and preaches this big movement. Everyone gets on board. A new book comes out. And then you just kind of toss. And then the next book comes out. And then you forget the other book. And you're just tossed everywhere. Okay, gullibility, the last one. By the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, that's gullibility, are you in danger of deception? By not knowing your Bibles, you leave yourself open to deception from the world and the devil. Think about how many people are deceived into cults. I'm thinking about cults specifically that have a Christian veneer, but are not Christian, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventist Catholics, because they have not read their Bibles, they fall into these movements unknowingly. And we ought to be dogmatic about the basic principles of the faith, and it will keep our ship on course. When we, and, and at least, at least, if we can know what the gospel is, and I, and I uh, often challenge people when I either first meet them or even if I've known them for a while, to ask them what is the gospel, and uh, sometimes they appear as a deer in a headlights, they have no idea. Um, I kind of did that last night, too. It was fun. Uh, they passed the test, so it was great. <laughs> but um, the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day, uh, on the third day according to Scripture. And uh, if we believe on him, we will be saved. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's as simple as that. We're coming, we're coming to the end. Verse 15. This is very important too. 
But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So we can uh, actually split that in half with the first side, speaking the truth. The necessity of doctrinal adherence, there can be no compromise on the essentials of the faith. Like who is Christ? The God-man. What is the nature of salvation? The five solas, which I do have up there. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That scripture is our highest authority. That God is the one who gets all the glory. Okay, we, we cannot compromise on these things. On the resurrection, are, are you a Christian that believes we're going to get reincarnated? You know, the Bible speaks nothing of reincarnation, but it does speak of resurrection. And by default, if you're here and you're a believer, you believe in resurrection. Because you cannot be here without believing in the resurrected Christ. On judgment, the final judgment, and the attributes of God. These are just a few. So we ought to be speaking these truths. But then what is our attitude in speaking these truths? Are we to go there and have a shouting contest with one another? In love. The truth must be spoken in the right spirit. And here's a uh, quote that I found from um, uh, expositor Blakey. He says, Truth is the element in which we are to live, move, and have our being. But truth must be inseparably married to love. Good tithings spoken harshly are not good tithings. The charm of the message is destroyed by the discordant spirit of the messenger. So if I appear to you as a jerk, you're most likely not going to receive my message very well, although it could be true. That's just how it is. And likewise, um, the Bible again and again commands us to be humble servants of the Lord, seeing others on a higher level than we see ourselves. And we are to do so to speak the truth in love, and people ought to feel that warmth coming from us. They're more willing to accept that message. And oftentimes what I would hear is uh, in distant places, they would, when they go and preach to a third world countries and peoples, they would often clothe them and feed them first. Because when you show the love of Christ and you fill their stomachs, they are more willing to hear the message that you have for them other than the other way around. So, final verse. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So, we look back and it says that Christ, and Christ connects, verse 15 and 16, the thought there. Jesus is not only the goal of growth, but he is also the source. Okay? And it's the body, it, it, might, it might sound very weird, but the body grows the body. Knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So that's a big one. Are you doing your share? It's kind of like the glue. If we are individual members of the same body, we have effectively been like joints, gluing one another to each other. The body builds the body, 
as we feed on the Bible, pray, worship, encourage, exhort, and witness for Christ. As Christians abide in Christ and fulfill their proper function in the church, they, go, they grow closer one to another. So, the key here is that they would fulfill their function in the body. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but we find ourselves in this Summit Church body, and I don't know if you know this, but God has literally placed each and every one of us. Peter talks about uh, believers as they are like precious stones, living stones that have been placed. So for every local body, Christ has placed you or those individual members in that body, and he has given individual gifts to those people so that we can join together. And Christianity is not a, uh, a solo sport. It's a team effort. And we have to come together as a body. Now, and I, I've mentioned this before a few times about a singular gift. Now, why would it be that Christ would give us only a singular gift? I thought, you know, you can have like all the gifts, right? Well, it would actually go contrary to what the point of the gifts are. What are the point of the gifts? Unity, right? But if you have all the gifts, why do you need to be united? So the idea is you have one gift to bring to the table to the body of Christ while another person has another gift. And so you are depending on that person for their gift and they are depending on you for yours. For example, say I have the gift of teaching and I bring that to the table. And then I need to find somebody in a moment who has the gift of prayer or who has the gift of, of evangelism to speak to my friend or countless scenarios. But we all ought to be working in the body with the gifts that we are given to draw closer to one another in unity. And that's the point of, of that passage. So for the conclusion, I just want to leave this message with a few questions. Do you know what your gift is? And that's a very like straightforward question. Have you ever given it much thought? Do you know who to go for for prayer, counseling, correction, encouragement? In your local body, do you know who to go to for these things? Who has those gifts? And it could change dramatically the way we do church if we understand our gifts and who has these gifts and seek them out because we will be more united. Are you being equipped? Are you seeking equipment or are you just a consumer? Is this something you take seriously? Or do you just check a box? I came to church today. I did my part. I left. I went home. That's it. Are you growing in harmony with the church members? Are there some members you dislike? That's a tough one. Do you have church goals to become more like Christ? Are we united? Does this world see there is something different about our unity? And so with that end, I'd like to say that everyone in the world is... Well, actually, I'll, I'll go the opposite way. No one in the world is united. They might think they're united, but everyone has little fringe beliefs, and they're all playing their little tunes. One guy out there, one gal out there doing their own thing, I'm protesting this, or I'm doing that. But we're different. So just to kind of put it in, in, into, uh, into a picture by a quotation from A.W. Tozer, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? Does that make sense? 
they, they are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Likewise, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship in some other way. So that's a mouthful. But the idea is that if I were to tune 100 pianos and individually tune this piano, individually tune the other piano and the other and the other and so forth, when I begin to play them, they're going to all be a little bit out of tune because I tuned them individually. But if I tune them to one standard, one tuning fork, they're all automatically tuned to that fork and they're all tuned to each other. It's that simple. And when we are tuned to one standard, which is Christ, through his word, we're all tuned closer to one another than if I were to individually try to become friends with you and you and you. It would still fall short of the uniting factor of Christ who tunes us. So we ought to be those worshipers that are tuned to that standard. And may God help us. So in that closing, I'd like to pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.